Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Why do we pray long prayers? So now just think about the times when you have time to pray for great lengths of time, and I know that's relative, perhaps for some of you that may mean 30 minutes, for some of you three hours, some of you five minutes, whatever it is. Nevertheless, why do we pray long prayers when we have the time to do so? When I ask some people about this, you know, they'll typically say uh, answers like, you know, well, hey, I started praying for my wife and kids, then I thought, oh, I should pray for my parents. Oh, then I should pray for my grandparents. Oh, should I should pray for my cousins. Oh, I should pray for my friends. And it just goes on and on and on. So it ends up being a longer prayer than expected. Some people said, well, it's, you know, prayer is like processing through something. And so, you know, it, it just takes a while to process through it. It's, it's not a, hey, help me with this. Amen. It's processing through the emotions of it and the maybe even problem solving and, um, you know, and so on. And then some people, it's just like, hey, you know what? Like, I just like to vent. So it takes a while. Why we pray long prayers? When we pray long prayers, um, a lot of good answers and responses. And as we get into this text today, uh, let, me, let me be clear about this. What, what I'm not going to be saying today is that we shouldn't pray long prayers. That would be a ridiculous misconstruction of what is about to be said. However, what I will do through examining Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount is hopefully to give us a better idea of the the mindset, the attitude, and even the knowledge of what we are praying or how we are praying when we are praying. Okay, so with that, let's just get right into it. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 7 through 15 today, but just verse 7 right away, okay? And the text reads, when you pray, (laughs) which is good, not if you pray, when you pray, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't babble like the Gentiles, or some translations were written. Don't heap up empty phrases or have vain repetitions like the Gentiles, like the pagans, and then even some translations like the unconverted. Now, let, let, let's remember for a second here that in the previous part, in last week's um, uh, discussion on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was criticizing those who claimed to be religious, aka, for example, the Pharisees, and his critique of them was that their prayer was wrong because it was showmanship. It was praying to be seen. That was the motivation behind it versus those who go and seek, get alone with God and then pray. And it's difference between praying to be seen and being seen praying. And of course, public prayer, corporate prayer, praying as a group of people, nothing wrong with that by any means. Jesus is talking about the kind of piety, though, that has the very motivation to pray, to be seen, to look impressive, etc. And those who were coming from, the critique was coming towards those who claimed to be religious. Now, he flips the script now and goes to the opposite side of the spectrum. 
from a Jewish perspective, uh, when you say Gentiles, especially in this particular context of using it, because of course it could be used in different ways, he's talking about those who are not religious according to a Jewish framework. Gentiles were those who are pagans. They, they have religious points of view, but they are far, far different, which we'll discuss, from the Jewish point of view. So now he goes the opposite side spectrum and says, okay, well, now let's talk about what's wrong about when the Gentiles pray. They heap up empty phrases. They babble on. They have vain repetitions. Okay, whatever your translation reads there, let's think about that. What kind of babbling is Jesus referring to here? We think about that because that, that, that that's kind of where the critique is so if we misunderstand that then we won't even understand what Jesus is getting at now this is when it's really informative and enriching to understand the kind of the historical cultural background to the kind of prayers the pagans or the Gentiles would do so in the Greco-Roman world um, you know so with Greek culture Roman culture kind of meshing together in the Hellenized world which is far different than, you know, Jewish world. The Greco-Roman pagan religions taught that you can pester the gods until they would give you what you want. And if for some reason that particular god you were praying to didn't seem too interested, then you would start hollering out to another god. After all, there were like 20 gods, and some would argue much, much, or many, many more, 20 gods that you could pray to. But the catch is that they didn't really care about you. You see, from a pagan perspective, the gods created people to do the dirty work of feeding them and serving them. They would be fed through sacrifices and adored through, obviously, people's service. But, uh, I mean, adored's maybe a misleading word because there wasn't really an affection in the heart for people. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, I just like, I have so much love for the gods. Like, no, 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 no. This was a transactional relationship. From the gods' point of view, the people, people didn't have much inherent worth other than the utility they provided. The gods didn't, don't care about you. They would answer your prayer in a favorable way if they felt like you entertained them enough or if you would do something in return for them or have already done something for them. This isn't love. This is manipulation. This is a transactional relationship. It's much more like a business and not like a love affair at all. Like this is, But this is life. And, uh, you know, someone once asked me, well, what, what's the appeal of this? Like, wh why would someone convert to this kind of pagan <laughs> perspective? And it wasn't that people would convert to it. And it wasn't that, you know, the Greco-Roman pagan world went around evangelizing their points of view. It just kind of just was. And so Yahweh, the God of the Israel, of the Jewish Hebrew Bible at the time, you know, um, was just so counterintuitive to this kind of thinking. So when Jesus comes passionately against this, he says, okay, so we talked about already how the Pharisees get it wrong. They pray for showmanship. But let's read the verse seven again. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. And then verse eight, don't be like them because your father knows things you need before you ask. You see, if you're, if you're praying with a pagan mindset, and even as a believer, if, you are, if you're falling into that kind of mindset, you might think, oh my gosh, like, I don't want to bother God with that. Or I don't want to bother God at all. Or wait, does God even hear? Does God even care? And, and, and if you were in that world today, or back then, it was a very possible reality from your point of view as a Gentile that 
that God, the gods that you're praying to, the particular one or the gods in general, weren't actually listening. They could have been eating their own meal, uh, tending to something else going on, uh, or hanging out with each other, or uh, on the toilet, or whatever. The point is that there was no guarantee that your prayers were heard. So one of the strategies you were taught in that world was to pester them. Make sure you're heard. You might have to repeat yourself. They might not be listening at that time, so you have to pester them about it. Oh, and make sure to, you know, try to get their favor, do something good for them, scratch their back, they'll scratch yours. This wasn't like, there wasn't like much hope, first of all, you know, beyond this life at all. Like, it, it was just like, hey, you know what? This is the way world the things are. We're created by the gods to kind of serve them, and, you know, all this. And so let's... um. If you want a good life here and now, because that's all there is, then hey, you might as well get with the system, get with the program, and this just find the formula. The formula of words, the kind of incantations, the things that the gods like to hear, uh, but also like the repetitions because, you know, they may or may not be listening. This is not the Father that Jesus is speaking of. Obviously, for many reasons, uh, you know, God isn't rivaled. There's not like a bunch of gods that you can keep switching who you're praying to. And for the record, I do think that these pagan people's experience was valid. I, I, what I mean by that is when someone of a different worldview talks about their quote-unquote experiences, I don't discredit them. That's not something to base your whole faith on, those experiences, because I believe that demons can give experiences. And I believe that demons can take on the persona of uh, the fictitious uh, religious ideas that we come up with and then entertain those so that we believe they're true. So uh, these so-called gods, if people um, you know, had experiences that made it feel like it was uh, this valid worldview, it very well could have been. But the source of it wasn't true God. It was... Demons. <laughs> Just a little side note there. So anyways, Jesus says, don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. So in other words, we're to pray, but not to impress. That's something we addressed last week. The father's not impressed by the prayers of showmanship, and he's not impressed by the prayers that think they can manipulate through technique or babbling on. As in everything in the sermon, it's about the heart. Again, the most important verse in the Sermon on the Mount, debatably, is Matthew 5.48. You are to be whole as your heavenly father is whole. Wholeness is about having our heart in our praying, not doing it for show, not doing it in vain repetitions as if we believe God has not heard us. That'd be thinking of God like a pagan God of the Roman pantheon. Now, if we believe scripture, the question naturally arises, if the Father knows, truly, truly knows what we need before we even ask him, why pray? It's a good question. But there's a ton of answers someone could say to this. You know, and some of the most important things to remember here is that unlike the pagan gods of the Greco-Roman world, God is never too busy to tend to our prayers. He is a caring father who anticipates our needs before we ask. I mean, you, you can, before the conversation you're going to have with God, he, he already knew and anticipated that you were going to come to talk to him about it, and he still looked forward to it, and he still tended to it. So I think one of the main things we have to see here, and of course prayer is so much more than just petitions uh, and all this. And it, it's more about intimate companionship versus informational communication. Now, of course, the Bible is full of examples of people bringing their specific requests before God. This verse isn't contradicting that. It's actually just stating that he anticipates the conversation before it happens. In other words, 
you won't surprise him with what you pray or when you pray. Because like the pagan gods, they may not even be ready to hear your request because they're busy doing something else. So they, they, you might catch them off guard. You might have to be repetitive just to even get their attention. So God's not surprised when you pray. He's not surprised with what you pray. So, But there's still, of course, value in praying for what you desire, and I do, and so please don't take the passage this way. You know, and I believe it's in James chapter 4, but, um, you know, it says, you have not because you ask not. And also, the other problem with that is you ask, but you ask with wrong motives. So there's more to the story, and through the examples of the Bible, we see plenty of times when people pray specifically, and we are to bring those specific requests to God. But we just know that he anticipates that and he cares. And so knowing that God knows what we're going to ask before we even ask him because he knows what we need doesn't mean that it's, there's not value to prayer. It just means that we come to a God who truly and deeply sees us, hears us, and cares for us. And so true prayer is about the heart. It's about resting in God's generosity and not on our own efforts and not in the effort to manipulate this relationship through uh, unfortunate pagan or other ideas of how to manipulate the relationship. And so, yeah, of course, we still give effort, but our, our effort, if you will, is complemented by walking hand in hand with our Father. You know, one of my theological pillars, you know, a phrase I use to refer to theological truths that bolster my faith and hold it strong and steadfast, one of my theological pillars coincides with this passage, and it says, God is not your genie. He is your Father. A genie gives you what you want with no concern for how it affects you. A good father gives you what you need because he cares about how it affects you. I hope you see the crucial difference there. And of course, it's not a one-to-one correlation to say that the pagan gods were like a genie, but it is kind of close to that. Like, they might give you something regardless of, you know, how it's going to affect you because they don't actually care about you. If their needs are being met, hey, I might, you know give you what you were asking for there. But in this case, God as our father, those who have relationship with him and call him father and he is their child, like this, it's not that way. The t- three typical responses to prayer, and God does answer every prayer. He hears every prayer and he answers every prayer and is you know, oversimplified here, but uh, is either yes, no, or wait. He might, yes, giving you what you asked for. No, not giving you what you asked for. Or wait, hmm, kind of going to, but not yet. Like, those are the three typical responses, and we have to like uh, remember to keep that in the mind of that he's a good father who, whether the response is yes, no, or wait, it's because he, he sees you, he knows you, he cares about you, and he cares about how this affects you and how this affects his macro plan of what he's doing here. It takes a lot of trust, I think. Because there's so many times that, you know, we have questions as to why something does or doesn't happen in terms of our prayer. And that's a discussion for another time, of course. But overall, I think that when we remember to think of God in the context of being Father, it really begins to shape how we approach our understanding of prayer. And that's how everything Jesus teaches about prayer is kind of grounded in that idea of seeing God as Father. And of course, you know, you can pray to the Holy Spirit, you can pray to Jesus, there's, you know, you could pray to any member of the Trinity, or you could pray just to triune God as a whole. But I, like in this case, Jesus is teaching his followers how to relate to, as their children, as to children, to God as Father. And so he's teaching them a lot. And every single teaching comes this idea of te- uh, thinking of God as Father and relating to them that way. So let's move on to verses 9 through uh, 13. 
And let's just read these in their totality and only make a few comments here to have a challenge for you of how to approach this passage. Very familiar passage. It reads this. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father, the one in heaven, may your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so, if you didn't know this, our spiritual ancestors of the second century saw so much value in this prayer that they made it a custom to pray these very words three times a day verbatim. The prayer became a pattern for early church's liturgy. Now, whether you pray it verbatim or you pray it by paraphrasing in your own language, I have a preference because, again, the, the more so the point is that your heart is in it. Some people love liturgy and they can do things that are uh, quoted verbatim and have um, repetition and so on. Uh, I, I am someone who loves liturgy, by the way. And so my heart can be in liturgy even if I'm quoting something or mem- memorize something and then saying it verbatim. My heart is able to do that. If your heart is not, then don't do it that way, of course. So whatever your heart's in it, either way, I think Jesus' intention here was to give them a model or a framework for all how all other prayers can, can um, look when we pray to the Father. It's, it wasn't necessarily to say pray these exact words every time. He says, um, therefore, you should pray like this, like this. Now, this is a framework. This isn't necessarily saying it, repeat these words verbatim, pray like this. So when you pray like this, um, it's a model, it's a framework. Following up on what he just said about the simplicity of prayer, not having a Babylon to be heard, but praying to your Father who knows you, who sees you, who hears you, cares for you. That, that's where it's coming from. So that first line, our Father, the one in heaven, may your name be honored as holy. I think the main thing I want to get across here, and it actually is my wife who brought this to my attention, but it's just really cool that the model prayer, the framework of a disciple's prayer, is grounded in first and foremost adoration and remembering who God is. And when we, we remember who God is and we keep him the center focus and the object of our worship and of our prayer, I think the rest of our prayers, the rest of how we pray the rest of that time shifts. It, it, it shifts from being about us and seeing ourselves as the center of the universe to seeing God as the center of the story. So starting with that, like our father, you know, you're the one in heaven and the one who rules heaven is the one who rules the universe. Our Father, the one, you you are our Father, you're close by, you're also the one in heaven. You're the one that transcendently rules everything. May your name be hallowed. May your name, I love that word, hallowed. May your name be honored as holy. Gosh, can we just meditate on that? And so when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, to be honored as holy, we're praying a prayer that God will certainly answer with an emphatic yes. God will have the world hallow his name both now and also in due time. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So of course the prayer for heaven to be on earth is like wrestling the two worlds together. We're talking about such opposing things. Heaven where God is unrivaled in his kingship and is the way things are supposed to go are and everything that he says is followed up by yes and amen and the obedience of the participants there. Whereas on earth, you know, things are quite different. Things are broken. Th- people, there, there's hostility. There's not harmony and all this. And so when we're praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is heaven, we're praying to wrestle the two worlds together. And there should be a tension and in, in, in that we see the seeds of the kingdom 
already, the kingdom of heaven already planted and working in our world now, yet we know that the fullness and radical newness of the new creation will be ushered in at the return of Jesus. So our prayer for the kingdom to come is a prayer that has present relevance, but also anticipates the eschatological promise of the future. And said in simpler terms, when we pray this prayer, we're trying to be an ambassador of the heavenly kingdom, even now, knowing that the ultimate goal, new creation, you know, spoken of in Revelation 21 and 22, is the fulfillment of this prayer when the kingdom of God does come and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, well, yeah, because the two worlds have been joined as one. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. And daily bread, of course, is a way of seeing the material needs for today. It wasn't just literally bread, obviously, obviously. Bread was more of the stand, stand in place word, uh, descriptive word that meant so much more. It was just your, the needs for today. And so, like I said, if this prayer was used uh, three times a day by the early church, or let's say at, at least two, then uh, used in the morning, this petition would ask for the bread for today, at the beginning of the day. And then used in the evening, it would pray for tomorrow's bread. Thus, I think the point is that we're to live one day at a time. Not that we don't have savings accounts or investments or anything like that, but hey, if you have those things, which you know I do too, that's great, uh, those are luxuries. <laughs> So let's just remember that and be grateful that it is a luxury to have a penny in a savings account. You know, for many people, give us today our daily bread is really the best and most that they can pray for. And in some ways, that is what we're taught to pray, not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. And I don't want to get ahead of us today because that is a passage we're coming to soon. So let's press on. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It just such a great commercial metaphor of forgiveness. Um, you know, if, if you owed, let's say, $5 million to the bank and they forgave it, they canceled the debt, um, and then someone owed you $2,000 and then you like held it over them and be like, what the heck? Did you not remember the debt that's forgiven you? If God has dropped the debt we owe him, how can we hold debt against someone else? And I love how this, you know, bring, this is. It's like, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We, we, we don't hold forgiveness, unforgiveness over anyone. That is not the Christian way. Every time the Bible talks about forgiveness, it's you forgive because you've been forgiven. Because you've been forgiven, you then forgive others. Verses in 14 and 15, if you skip ahead for a moment, make a really important point. For And this is Jesus, of course. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. I mean, this is one of the few times in the Bible that con there's like a conditionality to forgiveness. Like, and the, the conditionality is kind of simple, though, that if you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. And this goes back to one of the macrosms early in the sermon when uh, happy are congratulations to the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The very fruit and evidence that you've been shown mercy, that you've been forgiven, is your willingness to forgive others. Now let's get to the last line of the, the, the prayer um, in verse 13. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, this, this uh, desire that God is, or this recognition that God is stronger than the powers of darkness. That God is able to lead us away from the path of wickedness. And I, I like the translation from the evil one, and not just evil abstractly. One, because in the Greek, there's, an, there's that definite article before that word, 
nerd note. So there's a reason why we should translate the evil one versus just evil abstractly. But evil abstractly, no. Like there is someone out trying to mislead you. It's not just something that you'll, you know, abstractly coming after you or you may or may not fall into. No, no. There is an enemy in dark spiritual forces who are strategizing how to mislead you. That's a big difference. If there's some impersonal uh, evil out there, there's no strategy behind it. But from the evil one, the evil one is strategizing how to mislead you. But God is stronger and he can deliver us from the temptation of the evil one, of course. The last three parts of this uh, prayer are, are really cover the basics of life, like daily bread, again, being a description of provision, speaks to material need. Debts and having our debts uh, forgiven is a metaphor of our spiritual deficit because of sin, speaks of our spiritual need. And then deliver us from the evil one is a plea to be kept away from the path of wickedness, and the one who seeks to destroy us is a well, it was kind of like a moral need. So we have a material need, spiritual need, moral need. And if, if we think of this prayer not as necessarily just a verbatim prayer to pray, though that too, if you like liturgy and it's helpful for you, but as a framework, we, we see how we start with acknowledging God as Father, praising Him for who He is as the King of Heaven, and praising Him as, you know, His name being hallowed, asking for the, the promise of the kingdom to come and pervade all of reality, Starting with those kind of high and important things is that keeps the big picture in place. It keeps God at the center of the story and it keeps the big picture of redemption center of our prayer. But then the last things teach us that, hey, that's, it's okay to, and we should move into the things that talk about us individually as our needs, our material needs, our spiritual needs, and our moral needs. So it's a great framework of prayer. And I encourage you to spend more time in this passage. And sometimes with these very familiar passages, it's tempting just to overlook it, but spend more time with it. And my challenge to you is actually quite simple. Can you go through the, the what's called the Lord's Prayer, but I really think it's better put as the disciples' prayer because it's the Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray, not the Lord and how Jesus prays for himself. So, But anyways, how can you go through the disciples' prayer? How can you go through Matthew 6 and what it says about prayer and really work it into a, a, a principled framework of praying? Not that it, you get stuck in this and that you can't expand outside of it. And of course, prayer is so much more. There's contemplative prayer. There's meditative prayer. There's intercessory prayer for others. There's other prayers. So please, please, please don't escape and get away from those. And there's other passages that will talk about those types of prayers. But in how Jesus talks about prayer here and providing a framework, how are you going to use this? How are you going to heed this and then how are you going to use it? And if you have kids, how can you teach your kids the meaning of this? And so maybe what you want to do too as a good challenge is paraphrase this prayer, but with a kid's version. Um, to give uh, like just an idea from the first line, you can say something like, Our dad, the one who rules from heaven above. Let the world be in awe of your greatness. Like, it's not perfect or anything like that, and I'm not settled on that, but I'm just giving you an idea. Write a kid's version so that your kids can interact with this prayer and actually know what it means, not just... Don't say it verbatim unless you know what it means. Hey, if you can, if you know what this, these verses mean, then definitely say it verbatim. But that's my challenge to you. Use this prayer as a framework of how to pray. And I hope this would be edifying for you as you apply it for yourselves and you teach those around you and even your children. So that is it on for prayer today in this passage. As we leave, the main thing I want you to be remembering is that God 
who sees you, he hears you, he knows you, and he cares for you. Because when you pray, you're not praying to someone who may or may not be paying attention like the pagan gods of the Roman pantheon. No, you're praying to a God who hears you every single time. No matter what time you come to him, no matter um, what it's about, he hears you and he cares for you because you're his child. He's always available to you. Now, I think the only thing that remains, because he's so available to us, is to actually go and meet with him. To go and be with him. Not just when we have problems, not just when we have petitions, but when we just want his presence. To enjoy and keep happy company with God, as Clement um, from the second century said. So with that, it's been a delight. And I hope you have a great, wonderful week. We'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.